Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. The history of political parties in America has been a small c conservative one. We can mark on one hand, really, the number of times that parties have profoundly shifted in their fundamental ideas and players. In modern times, the Republicans went through an upheaval in 1964 with the Goldwater nomination. From 1968 through 1972, the Democrats went through their time in the wilderness. But each time, if you drill down, there were core values and ideas that remained constant. Today, amidst the Trump era, the Republican Party has totally transformed. The party of Gerald Ford, George Bush, Mitt Romney, and John Boehner is now the party of Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, Kerry Lake, and Kevin McCarthy. Where once marginal tax rates and less government was the engine that drove the party, today it's driven by a MAGA movement that seems to want to turn back every aspect of liberal society from the Enlightenment to the present. A kind of counter-revolutionary force that seems to want to actually harness the power of government to defend what they see as the nation's traditions, now under siege by liberalism, globalization, and corporations. And to do it in a way that weaponizes meanness, truculence, and violence as a legitimate instrument of policy. While January 6th was perhaps the current apogee, the players in the current election cycle show that we're not done yet. Where we are, how we got here, and who the players are, are the focus of Robert Draper's new book, Weapons of Mass Delusion. Robert Draper is a longtime contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and National Geographic. He is the author of several books, including Dead Certain and To Start a War. And his latest work is Weapons of Mass Delusion. When the Republican Party lost its mind, it is my pleasure to welcome Robert Draper here to the Who, What, Why podcast. Robert, thanks so much for joining us. It's truly my pleasure. Thanks for having me back, Jeff. Well, it's great to have you back. The change in the GOP that, that we see today certainly didn't happen overnight. It's been seemingly going on for a long time with the rise of right-wing talk radio and Fox and the Tea Party movement back in, in the early 2000s. But something has changed with Trump, and, and particularly more recently, as you talk about, January 6th itself was some kind of pivot point in the whole movement. Talk about that first. Absolutely. And first, let me just say that was a very astute opener that you articulated to your listeners. And um, and it's really true that, that uh, titans of the Republican Party like Jerry Ford not only um, would not be uh, the titans of today, but in fact would be demeaned and even cast out as as uh, rhinos republicans in name only january the 6th was a was a real signal moment for the party and i i should say that i got my contract to do the book just a, three weeks beforehand and the contract you know basically i knew i was going to be writing about a very factionalized republican party um at that point trump hadn't hadn't conceded but figured he would at some point right you know that uh, they all do and and uh, and i my first day of doing reporting for the book was uh, the morning of January the 6th. Um, uh, what occurred that day was really seismic. And and um, I think most reasonable folks would have 
come away from that horrific experience, whether at close range, like I witnessed it, or just watching it and hearing about it on TV, um, they would have come away with the view that, well, the Republican Party has really got some work to do, uh, because it was um, members of their party who egged on this riotous mob, and uh, surely they will do everything they can to divest themselves of um, the elements that gave rise to the insurrection and to um, to turn away from Trump once and for all. Uh, that, of course, as we know now, is not what happened. And those uh, few members of the Republican Party that were vocal in believing that the party needed to wash its hands of Trump, uh, prominent among them Liz Cheney, have been all but exiled from the party, while those who embraced uh, Trumpism and the Make America Great Again, the MAGA movement, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, are now the dominant forces inside the party. In many ways, though, the January 6th, the Stop the Steal movement, as, as you talk about, represented some kind of a powerful metaphor because during this whole period that the party was changing, what we talked about a little while ago, that, that somehow Stop the Steal became a metaphor for this stop the change in the country that they were seeing, the sense that not only the election was stolen from them, but the country has been stolen from them. I could not agree with you more that, um, that Stop the Steal and the very notion that the 2020 election had been, had been stolen was the apotheosis of a, a, a long-standing view among millions of um, principally non-educated, non-college educated uh, whites who, um, who believed that America as they knew it was being taken away from them bit by bit. And so uh, uh, the idea of a presidential election in which their beloved leader, uh, Donald Trump, um, was defeated fair and square, but but in their view had been stolen was a powerful metaphor, as you're saying, because it really represented um, not only how things have been taken away from them over time, culturally, economically, and in other ways, but also it represented for them how the people who were doing the taking were incorrigibly evil and would stop at nothing and had no soul, no patriotism. Uh, they were godless. These words, by the way, that I'm using, I'm using advisedly, like godlessness. They are now used um, casually by uh, uh, members of the MAGA right, like Marjorie Taylor Greene. And, um, but that notion of a stolen election has since January the 6th given rise to all these other adjacent notions that um, that the Democrats in conjunction with the media have stolen truth, for example, in the form of calling January the 6th an insurrection when it was, in fact, okay, now take your pick with these scenarios, either a thoroughly peaceful protest or something that was uh, set up by the FBI and um, in conjunction with um, uh, Nancy Pelosi, or something that had been peaceful until Antifa showed up on the scene and riled people up. So there are these shifting notions of truth, but, um, but in the upside down world, it constitutes a diluted electorate. Um, truth is up for grabs. Given how deep this theology is, this MAGA theology is in the Republican Party, it leads one to believe that, that Trump didn't create this environment, that he unleashed something that had been there, had been lurking for a long time. I think that's accurate. And let's just take the example of um, 
the 2020 stolen election, a stop the steal. Uh, it had been axiomatic for decades um, in Republican circles that Democrats cheat. The Democrats steal votes, commit fraud all the time. Principally, they would be referring Republicans would who would say these things um, to the urban areas, uh, which was a, basically code for you know um, minority voters being uh, their votes being bought or you know just sort of dumbly shepherded to the polls. Uh, and this is you know something that that when I talk to run-of-the-mill establishment Republicans, um, they grew up hearing this stuff, and they just accept it in the way that they accept that Hillary Clinton is a crook without being able to point to the statute that she violated that would make her a crook. Uh, and so uh, Trump recognized this. And uh, when in 2020 he started warning that if I lose, it's going to be because Democrats steal, Okay, there were a lot of people who thought this was unseemly, but there were a lot of others who were willing to buy it because it was essentially in their uh, in, in their bloodstream, the, the notion that Democrats do this sort of thing. There is the sense also that while this had been lurking for a long time, it wasn't just an American phenomenon, but this, this global populist phenomenon, this global nationalism was also part of it. That's certainly true. And of course... Trumpism coincided with Brexit and uh, and then with now there had already been, you know, authoritarian regimes throughout the world, such as in Turkey. But we saw in, in uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary and in other places, the rise of authoritarian authoritarian figures in uh, in response to a wave of nationalism that was sweeping the globe and um and this nationalism you know as as to its root causes some of it has to do with the belief that um uh that being more quote-unquote globalistic being part of a global community has not worked out for um various citizens and part of it is frankly racism you know the view that that um uh that immigration that that um that um, uh, Muslim refugees from Asia and uh, uh, and you know elsewhere uh, are now arriving and changing cultures in places like Italy. Uh, so um, so Trump sensed this. I mean, it's, you know, the, um, it, it, there's an incoherence too. I, I should say to the foreign policy of these countries, including, frankly, the U.S., that embrace nationalism, because they're not really sure what that means in terms of their country's role in the world. All they know is that their country should be the most important concern at the exclusion of um, foreign policy agreements, trade agreements, etc. And it has left a gaping hole in a discussion, say, in the U.S. that should have been taking place about America's role in the world following the Iraq debacle. Uh, the discussion still needs to happen, but the Republican Party has instead retreated into a kind of um, nativism and isolationism. The other part of, of Stop the Steal, in addition to this metaphor that we talked about before, there's always the talk that, that somehow it represents some anti-democratic force but in fact, that anti-democratic force is baked into this MAGA theology. You talk about several stories where, where you hear from some of these MAGA people the idea that, that democracy is antithetical to what they think needs to happen to the country. Well, and I think that for them, um, the ultimate proof of that came in the form of January the 6th. They believe that the election had been stolen, that a democratic election had been 
undermined um, by malevolent actors on the left. And January the 6th was going to be the moment where that was corrected. And in fact, Trump in his speech at the Ellipse on January the 6th used the word democracy three times, uh, saying we need to save our democracy. Well, in the eyes of the, of the MAGA constituents, that did not occur. Um, the peaceful trans, uh, transfer of power was disrupted, um, but was not reversed on that day. And henceforth, you now hear MAGA constituents, and I, in my reporting, encountered many of them, who view democracy as something that's been weaponized against them. And, and some of them have taken pains to say, and I illustrate this particularly in a story I did for the New York Times magazine while doing my reporting, focusing on the Republican Party of Arizona, you hear them say that we're not a republic, we're, or we're not a democracy, we're a republic. And uh, it's not that they were making some fine um, uh, academic point. They were instead basically calling um, attention to their distrust of and even loathing of democracy as they now know it. For them, democracy means mob rule. It means 50 percent plus one equals you can take everything away from me. Again, it, it represents forfeiture. And uh, uh, for people who no longer um, who feel like they've been losing all too often after winning for so very long and now feel like anything that looks like loss must be theft or must be part of this dirty word that democracy has become. Does history give us any guide that you've seen anywhere along the way where the fringes of a political party, the fringes of a political movement have become so ingrained in the mainstream of that movement? Well, I mean, sure, obviously, and I hate to to um, to bring it up, and I'm not, you know, suggesting that where where Germany was in the 1930s, but but certainly, you know, what um, Hitler's, you know, National Socialism movement was a French movement that um, that slowly but surely took over um, the sentiment of of Germans who felt wronged by the outcome of World War One and the Treaty of Versailles, and and uh, and were looking for someone to blame, while at the same time um, uh, being very responsive to any assertion that um, that uh, their country was a, uh, a first among equals, a great country, and indeed a world power. And um, my grandfather. Uh, who was Leon Jaworski, the Watergate special prosecutor, was earlier um, a prosecutor of the first Nazi war crimes trials in Dachau. He wrote a book about this experience called After 15 Years. And the basic message of the book was, you know, after 15 years of being of prosecuting this, I'm here to tell you in 1960 that what I witnessed in Germany can happen elsewhere, and certainly in America, as long as you have these sort of credulous um uh, a credulous electorate yearning for uh meaning yearning for someone to blame and on and a demagogue who is willing to play to those base instincts and all of this gets put on steroids in this day and age with 24-hour news cycles social media and the ability of people like trump and and, and carrie lake and others to manipulate the media in in modern ways that make all of this even more dangerous, it seems. I think that's correct, and it, and of course it coincides with a steady erosion of trust in um, the major American institutions: uh, government, big tech, um, uh, education, but also the media. And so uh, the 
um, journalists like myself are, are held by the public in, in um, fairly low regard these days, and particularly amongst conservatives. And to them, the belief that, uh, that they were lied to uh, by the mainstream media in things like what Trump refers to as the Russia collusion hoax uh, has then opened them up, made them susceptible to believing alternative forms of media, uh, which, to take an extreme example, can come in the form of the QAnon conspiracy theory, and to take you know, in um, a somewhat lesser um, extreme to uh, these propaganda outlets for the MAGA movement, like One American News and Newsmax and Real America's Voice, uh, Breitbart, to name just a few. Um, these are not true media outlets. I mean, they, they have media credentials, but they are essentially propaganda outlets for, for Trump. And yet um, they, they provide the quote unquote facts that uh, that listeners and readers in that movement want to hear. So they believe what they wish to believe and in turn um, disbelieve everything that the mainstream media says. And then, of course, the overlay, which you write about extensively in Weapons of Mass Delusion, are the people like Marjorie Taylor Greene who, who are experts at weaponizing this. That's right. And, and, you know, so there are two things working here, Jeff. I mean, one is that people like Greene um, truly believe, you know, that uh, that Trump is a great president, that Trump has been victimized by uh, the left uh, in collusion with the mainstream media. And they, and people like Green truly believe that we are in a, an existential situation in, uh, in this American moment. They believe those things, but they also recognize that um, to trumpet those beliefs in the most extreme, shrill, uh, and hateful way possible is the way to get attention. And we have today what's what's referred to as the attention economy in the form of social media, where uh, a person like Marjorie Taylor Greene is incentivized to say really hateful and really nutty things. Uh, uh, it's incentivized in the form of online donations and in, in terms of social media platform growth. And in terms of, of the red carpet that is rolled out to people like Green from the right wing media ecosystem for being the loudest, most obnoxious voice in the room. So they believe this stuff, but they also know that what they're doing um, is uh, is incentivized. Uh, uh, of course, um, there is very little regard given to the effect of this, all this on the tens of millions of people who swallow this propaganda. Uh, and, you know, that's it's really the, the people who are deluded on mass that form the, the, the basis of my book and, frankly, are central um, as a matter of concern to me. And in all likelihood, these are going to be central players in the upcoming Congress post-election. People like Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and Lauren Boebert and some of the others that you talked to. Mm -hmm. For sure. And, and the reason for that, uh, simply stated... Jeff, is that uh, the MAGA movement is basically the Republican base. I don't mean to say that that, um, that all or even most Republicans um, are hardcore Trump support supporters, but enough of them are, and they're very, very motivated, and they show up at primaries, and they make telephone calls, and they issue donations. And Kevin McCarthy, the Republican House Minority Leader, is well aware of all of that. He he is of the belief that the Republican Party um, 
cannot win if Donald Trump's faithful do not turn out in force for the Republican Party. So he has to genuflect, in his view, um, to them and, and to the proximate warriors of the Trump movement. And those proximate warriors are indeed Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Paul Gosar and Matt Gates and others of that stripe. And I guess the question, and I know you've been asked this before, is how all this plays out. Yeah, I mean, does it generate a civil war? Does it collapse of its own weight? Does it just tire out, flame out at some point? Well, for there to be a, an intramural civil war, a civil war within the party, both sides have to fight. And right now, I don't see a whole lot of evidence, Jeff, that the kind of um, mainstream um, establishment Republicans uh, have any appetite for that fight. Instead, they've kind of gone to ground. They're afraid that if they challenge, with, with a few pointed exceptions, but for the most part, they're afraid to challenge the Marjorie Taylor Greens because um, they're afraid they'll get primaried. And if they get primaried by a more MAGA um, uh, type uh, candidate, they're likely to lose. The argument these people, these establishment Republicans often make then is like, I'm not going to, you know, look, not only do I not want to lose my job, you don't want me to lose my job. Uh, and so um, you'll thank me later that I, as an adult in the room, quote unquote, uh, am sort of going to ground. Um, uh, but it does beg the question, Jeff, then absent a fight, absent a civil war within the party, how does the MAGA movement dissipate? And, and uh, uh, you know, I, I guess one possibility is that they become so extreme and that they sort of like a, a somehow become a fire that consumes itself, you know, that, um, uh, but I think that the likelier scenario is that this movement dies out only once they take charge and proceed to lose election cycle after election cycle because of their venality or their incompetence. And and uh, I think it's going to require losing not once, but several times. Once, obviously, we know they'll just say it was stolen from them, but it's but uh, um, but only when Americans as a body politic reject wholesale um, uh, the MAGA movement um, will it perhaps finally be defeated. I mean, the lack of the internal pushback to any of this is, is evidenced. It's evidenced by McCarthy, but also in, in the conversations you have with Patrick McHenry. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. McHenry is, um, I think, you know, a, a classic sort of adult in the room uh, establishment conservative, definitely a conservative. I mean, it, it, uh, and yet I say definitely the truth is conservatism these days is just simply defined by how supportive you are of Trump and McHenry, um, who finds Trump um, distasteful on multiple levels, nonetheless doesn't come out and say that, doesn't come out and say uh, we would do well to to turn away from Trump once and for all, but just changes the subject instead. Uh, McHenry um, was presented by Kevin McCarthy with the opportunity to run for a majority whip should the Republicans take back the House. And McHenry basically said, uh, no, thanks. I'm, I do not want to be the guy who's trying to herd the cats, as it were, trying to count votes um, uh, when the votes include, you know, these people who now have major leverage uh, and loud voices, even if they're in the minority, like Green and Boebert and, and Gates. I'd rather be chairman of the Financial Services Committee. And so, you know, the, um, and McHenry is someone widely respected by people on the other side of the aisle who nonetheless are chagrined to see that, that McHenry won't stand up and fight um, uh, these sort of MAGA Republicans. And, uh, and McHenry's theory is, well, 
eventually it's not so much that they'll go away, but they will just be layered over in a kind of um, stratigraphy, you know, of, of the Republican Party that they'll um, and the party will abide them uh, and they'll ultimately cease to uh, uh, to have a major voice. I, I think that there, however, as we've been discussing, no real historical parallels in America for what the MAGA movement is. And thus, I'm not sure that these other um, uh, antecedents really apply to this situation. And this goes back to this point of, of, of sort of on steroids in the modern media environment, because this has really happened so quickly. Yeah, that's right. And it's and and I think, you know, so to take the example of Marjorie Taylor Greene, she's in a lot of ways the personification of how quickly this happened, because after all, she she was a political novice um, who hadn't even voted in you know every election um, uh, and uh, and decided in May of 2019 to file to run for Congress. Um, she was a QAnon adherent. People thought that that would finish her off. It didn't. Um, when she came to Congress, and was stripped of her committee assignments one month in. It was believed that, that she'd just be a marginal character. Flash forward, she's now you know the um, uh, a dominant messenger in the Republican Party. Without changing any of her extreme beliefs, you hear the party now echoing a lot of hers. Um, McCarthy is promising her plum committee assignments, such as on oversight and judiciary. Trump has talked to her about being his running mate in 2024. She is one of the major fundraisers of the Republican Party on Capitol Hill. In short, um, she has become, whether anyone likes it or not, a real political force and has done it in less than three years. So yes, she represents what you're describing, how at warp speed, the Republican Party um, has so drastically changed. Talk about the role of this sort of national conservative movement, this kind of national Christian conservative movement, and how it feeds into this. Yeah, I mean, I look the the, um, the right wing Christianity has been you know a prominent feature for many decades of um, uh, first the Democratic Party, and then when in the wake of the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act. Uh, uh, those Dixie Democrats uh, migrated over to the Republican Party. So did um, uh, conservative evangelicals. And uh, and they have been a force to reckon with uh, in Republican politics for a while. George W. Bush knew that, for example, and, and uh, certainly um, uh, you know, dialogued with evangelicals uh, throughout his two campaigns, but nothing like um, uh, the Trump era, where Trump, who is like a, a rather <laughs> a rather unlikely choice to be, you know, a um, uh, an avatar of uh, of Christian nationalism, cut a deal basically in in um, in early 2016 with the evangelicals who were inclined to support Ted Cruz. But who could see what a transactionalist Trump was, and uh, basically Trump um, uh, was happy to appoint, uh, though Trump had been himself pro-choice in the past, happy to uh, appoint um, anti-abortion federal judges to the bench, uh, and um, uh, and what that got him in return was the loyalty of evangelicals, and in his view, cost him nothing. So um, they've um, to this day. Uh, um, the vast majority of conservative evangelicals point to Donald Trump as their King David, uh, you know, uh, an imperfect um, vessel of God um, who has um, in many ways uh, given them more than any other president has. Robert Draper, his book is Weapons of Mass Delusion. 
Robert, I thank you so much for spending time with us today here on the Who, What, Why podcast. Really a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.